Did The Mandalorian just give us a secret series finale? Welcome back to Nerdist News. I'm Dan Casey, and today we're breaking down The Mandalorian's epic season three finale. In less than an hour, the episode changed basically everything we know about The Mandalorian, and weirdly, it felt like a series finale in some regards. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment, but to do so, I have to spoil the episode. So if you haven't seen The Mando season three finale yet, and you're worried about that sort of thing, leave now before it's too late. Ready? Stay close. Let's go. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? The Mandalorian ended its third season not with a whimper, but with a bang. Specifically, the banging of Beskar armored fists against Imperial skulls, the banging of Mandalorian gauntlets celebrating their victory, and the banging of Moff Gideon's ship directly into his secret base, which I guess is more of a booming if you want to get technical about it. But as a finale, the episode was fine. It was fine. It did a serviceable, perfectly cromulent job of wrapping up most of its plot lines in a pretty tidy fashion. Director Rick Famuyiwa really elevated this material, though, with sequences like that shield door hallway fight and the coordinated chaos of Bo-Katan leading the Mandalorian troops into battle. Other moments like that final scene of the episode on Navarro and the badeep badeep that's all folks ending oozed original trilogy from every single frame. And while some of our theories and predictions did come true, others were summarily upended and now we have even more questions than ever before, but we'll save those for another day. I'm the spy. I said we'll save those for another day. The most radical thing this episode did, though, was to completely change everything by returning them to a very familiar baseline, so much so that it's even titled The Return. Now, it's not quite a status quo, but it's almost like a send-off, leaving all of our heroes in a nice, peaceful place of repose. But you know what it really feels like? And I mentioned this at the top. It feels like a series finale. It kind of feels like we're bringing our characters back home again after their adventures are all done with the vague promise of more to come. It's kind of like how fans keep clamoring for classic Rick and Morty, whatever that means, but the show resists it with tongue-in-cheek asides. But here, after getting bogged down in increasingly interconnected plot lines, Favreau, Filoni, and company have basically cleared the game board. And look, I'm sure there's a great reason for this. It's highly likely we will get a Mandalorian season four, but we probably won't see these particular characters in the spotlight again until like late 2024 or probably 2025 at the earliest. So it's nice to know that our favorite character will be relatively safe and sound in the meantime, because Ahsoka's gonna be dealing with the deadliest threat to the galaxy far, far away in Grand Admiral Thrawn, and she might have to do a little time traveling as a treat to stop him. And so, with that in mind, let's talk about a few of the hardest resets the Mandalorian season three finale gave us. And let's start where the episode did in Media Res, during the middle of the showdown on Mandalore. Now, at least one of our predictions came true. For the record, Grogu was the one who ultimately rescued Din Djarin from his captors. The wee baby Grogu also desperately tried to heal his father's wounds using IG-11's back to spray, which you may recall from season one. It's just one of the many instances of the Mandalorian giving us a rhyming couplet to the season two finale. Roll the quote. Again, it's like poetry, it's sort of they rhyme. Mm -hmm. Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. We get yet another showdown between Moff Gideon and Bo-Katan, Din, and Grogu. The last time this took place on Moff Gideon's ship, but this time the ship is on Moff Gideon. I said. <laughs> And speaking of Moff Gideon, he gets one of the hardest resets of the series, or so we're led to believe. We learn the truth behind his secret science project. It turns out he wasn't trying to perfect the snoking process for Palpatine. Rather, he's such an egomaniac, he tried to artificially create force sensitivity in clones of himself. 
So it looks like he was lying through his teeth to the Shadow Council after all. The creation of clones is your obsession, not mine. This particular plot seems to be straight out of the 1998 novel Vision of the Future, in which Grand Admiral Thrawn actually had a secret base with a clone of himself inside of it. It also raises a number of questions about Supreme Leader Snoke, the consequences of Dr. Pershing's laser lobotomy, and Project Necromancer, but we'll get into that particular matter in a future video. More importantly, the Mandalorian seemingly killed off its most enduring villain to date, the man who's menaced our heroes since season one. Despite doing his best Kirkland brand Darth Vader impression right down to the Return of the Jedi riff, I will deal with them myself, Moff Gideon got his absolutely rocked. From orbit. Dude basically got Gus fringed by a low-speed Holdo maneuver, which is about as dead as dead can be when you don't see a body in a franchise famous for having evil dudes in black armor survive horrific burns, only to return as asthmatic cyborgs. I mean, this guy was wearing Beskar alloy armor. That's pretty dense and pretty strong. His biggest problem right now is something that other Star Wars villains face, falling down a bottomless pit. Once again, we see Grogu use the Force to prevent flames from barbecuing everyone he loves. This is the much more powerful version of him stopping the Flame Trooper back in the Season 1 finale. And much like Kanan Jarrus on Rebels, Grogu saved his friends from certain death, but this time the wee baby Grogu managed to avoid an untimely end. The biggest consequence of their battle, though, is that the Darksaber is destroyed by Moff Gideon. This Mando MacGuffin's been at the center of the series and Mandalorian culture for so long that its destruction feels like the only viable way to actually move this fractured society forward. It's absolutely fitting that Moff Gideon, someone who tries to co-opt or desecrate Mandalorian people and culture at every turn, is the one who destroys this symbol. And in doing so, he underscores the most important lesson of the entire season. Mandalorians are stronger together. So to paraphrase Michael Walsh in his essay on Nerdist, the Mandalorians are at their best when their clans work together, supporting each other and protecting each other. It's exactly how Din Djarin saved Bo-Katan in this moment. It's how they finally beat Moff Gideon thanks to an assist from Axe. And it's why the Mandalorian people's greatest enemy was actually themselves. Because their endless civil wars and infighting left them vulnerable to exploitation and attack by the Empire. And by reforging those bonds of kinship, they were able to adapt, overcome, and ultimately emerge victorious. Because at the end of the day, owning the Darksaber was purely symbolic. Yes, it's a very cool weapon and it signaled legitimacy, but more powerful than a Vanta Black glow stick is what Bo-Katan actually accomplished. She led the Mandalorian people to successfully retake their homeworld and defeat one of their culture's greatest enemies in the process. And besides, as the episode reminds us and Bo-Katan knows full well, the Mandalorian people's most viable and powerful symbol is alive and well beneath the living waters. Folks, I'm talking about the Mythosaur. He's back, baby. And as we know, the Mandalorians are a society of warriors whose specialty is forging unparalleled weaponry and armor. They're like a bunch of Tony Starks in a cave with a box of scraps, except their forge is much greater than whatever Tony Stark had with the Ten Rings. There's no reason they couldn't just reforge the Darksaber at some point, especially because the armor turned out to not be a secret spy after all. I mean, that's a crazy theory. Who would espouse that? But I would argue they don't really need the Darksaber anymore, and its destruction is actually symbolic of a new era for the Mandalorian people. And speaking of that new era, Mandalore is actually returning to a long dormant tradition, one that dates back centuries and centuries, it seems. Gone are the days of infighting between renegade factions and terrorist cells. The sight of plant life not only surviving, but thriving underneath the planet's surface is a testament to the fact that new life is possible. And it's definitely not something that Star Wars also stole from Dune. 
We have hideouts and food caches throughout the surface of the planet. We have thousands of such caches. When we leave the Mandalorian people at the Great Forge, it kind of feels like their long saga of trials, tribulation, and untold suffering has come to a close for the time being. But considering they're nowhere to be seen by the time of the sequel trilogy, I'm sure some fresh horrors await them. Or maybe they'll all get eaten by the Mythosaur on Grogu's order, signaling a heel turn that none of us saw coming. Yes. And speaking of Grogu, the wee baby has a brand new name that none of us expected. Grogery St. John. Wait, that was a... Different video. I meant Din Grogu. Because not only does Din Djarin formally adopt Grogu as his son, but he takes him on as his apprentice as well. As for why it's Din Grogu and not Grogu Djarin, there's actually a great explanation for this, which Michael Walsh wrote all about over on Nerdist. Now, the long and the short of it is that Din Djarin is not a Mandalorian by birth. He was a foundling from the planet Akvatina, where he was rescued by Death Watch as a child. And while Mandalorian family names come at the end of their name, like Paz Vizsla or Bo-Katan Kryze, for Din Djarin, his family name comes first, hence Din Grogu. Now, apparently becoming a Mandalorian apprentice is a very convenient plot device in and of itself, because that means you need to go and have your journeys, or as Grief Karga calls them more aptly, your adventures. Now, Din Grogu and Din Djarin can get back to doing what they do best, having wild adventures on the Outer Rim loosely sanctioned by the New Republic. And the New Republic is in dire need of people like them, because that Rangers of the New Republic show probably isn't happening. And speaking of the New Republic, it's clearly still a giant, lumbering, bureaucratic mess of a government incapable of properly protecting its people, especially knowing what's coming in the next decade. And that's to say nothing of Dave Filoni's upcoming Star Wars movie, which will bring the storylines of Ahsoka, The Mandalorian, and the Book of Robert Fettuccini to a head. But for now, they're comfortable with turning a blind eye and an open wallet to bounty hunters like Din Djarin and Grogu. And among those turning a blind eye, besides Carson Teva, of course, are a gaggle of Mandalorian directors, including Peter Ramsey, Lee Isaac Chung, and Dave Filoni's Trapper Wolf. I know, it's probably pretty hard to spot him, but uh, just look for the hat. And just like the show's very first episode, Din Djarin returns to Navarro, but this time with his son in tow. And now they're settling down in a nice cabin out in the open rather than skulking in the shadows of the Mandalorian covert or having to take shady jobs just to eke out a living. And not only that, but they brought IG-11 back to life with a much more robust dialogue tree than IG-12 had. Yes. And in these final moments, we see what the episode's title is truly referring to. This is the return, Din and Grogu returning home at long last. This is the end of their hero's journey for now. In the framing of the final shot of Din and Grogu on their little parcel of land, it feels like it's of a kin with the iconic shot of Luke Skywalker staring out at the twin sons of Tatooine in A New Hope. But instead of yearning for adventure in what lies beyond the horizon, Din Djarin and Grogu are grateful to finally have somewhere to call home. And they say you can never go home again, but this proves you can absolutely make a new one. As for Grogu, although his frog moment is played for a sweet laugh to end the episode on, it also shows he really took Luke's Jedi training to heart. And he can even restrain his voracious appetite a little bit. Well, sometimes. Hey, spit that out. For now, though, it seems like it's only a matter of time until our heroes develop a fresh appetite for adventure, which they will inevitably whet in a season four. But if that season four were never to happen, let me ask you something. Would you really be that disappointed? This feels like a great stopping place. It's like a proverbial save point for these characters who have faced relentless conflict and adversity for three seasons now. I know it's not a series finale, but it sure as hell feels like one. Uh, 
Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's everything you need to know about The Mandalorian Chapter 24, The Return. We'll have plenty of other deep dives for you in the days ahead over on Nerdist, but for now, tell us, what did you think of this episode? What do you think the future holds for our heroes? Sorry, I don't speak binary. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.